Hello, my nonprofit unicorns. Real quick, if this podcast has helped you at all in the past year, can you do me a favor and leave a rating and a review? This helps the almighty algorithms determine that my podcast is worth showing to new people. I appreciate it and I appreciate you. Now on with today's show. Hello and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. Thanks so much again for being here with me today. And today's episode is one of my favorite topics. It's storytelling. And we're going to discuss the right way to tell a fundraising story. And you'd be surprised there is absolutely a right way to structure it. And my guest today is a storytelling expert, Vanessa Chase Lockshin, a consultant specializing in nonprofit storytelling, fundraising, and communications. She's the author of The Storytelling Nonprofit, A Practical Guide to Telling Stories that Raise Money and Awareness. I will put it in the show notes. And the creator of Immersive Online Training Programs for Nonprofit Professionals. Vanessa is an award-winning entrepreneur, an avid reader, and resident of Victoria, Canada, and also a working mom. We just talked about that. So Vanessa, how did you get started in this work? I've been following you for years and years and years. I'm sure a lot of my listeners are familiar with your work, but how did you get started in fundraising and then what led you to the focus on storytelling? What a good question. I mean, how do any of us get started in fundraising? (laughs) I feel like I fell into it probably like... 50% of us in some ways. I got started in professional fundraising right out of college. I got a job in my university advancement office working in the annual giving program there. And I was really fortunate to work under some truly incredible professionals who were just the top of their game in direct response fundraising and really learned a lot from them about what it looks like to run a great annual giving program. And I wasn't really sure at the time what I was going to do career wise, but I loved the creativity that is in fundraising. And I know not everybody sees that or appreciates that about it. But I think especially in copywriting, there's just a lot of things about that that like really get my creative juices flowing <laughs> and uh, give me a lot of problems to sink my teeth into. And I think in terms of the storytelling piece, I, I mean, I, I worked in-house at two different organizations early on in my career. And I think I just really early on understood the value of what really good direct response copywriting looked like. It tells a story on two levels. There's the narrative about the problem, about what's going on, but there's also the vignette story about someone or something that people can really connect to. And I think really seeing the differences between really great copy and really bad copy (laughs) just became like clear to me about how powerful the words you are you use to talk about your cause and 
what you're raising money for can be. And it made me a real word nerd in my career, <laughs> just wanting to really understand how I could best talk about causes and help them really represent themselves in the best way possible to donors. And in your blog, you write a lot, just not just about the importance of storytelling. It's a lot about tactics and tips and advice for nonprofits as they're trying to navigate how to gather stories, how to collect stories, how to write stories. So you write a lot about storytelling and story structure. So just for my audience, you know, why do nonprofits need a structure to their stories? And the second piece of that question is, how can we really ensure that our structure is not like cookie cutter, you know, that it's defined for our unique message and mission? Yeah, I think those are really good questions. I mean, to me, I think that I always think about fundraising copywriting as being this like really wonky genre, right? Like it's such a different type of nonfiction writing. It's different than how businesses write brochures for customers. It's very different from like fiction writing and fiction storytelling. And I think the value in having a structure, like I would say like loosely defined structure that you can follow to hit really key points in your storytelling is that you're able to better get your message across and really build the compelling argument for giving. To me, I always think about it as the difference between just, you know, like I think like a compelling quote or testimonial about somebody who's benefited from the work, like a great one or two line sentence and an actual journey that you can take people on to show them why that quote is so important and contextualizing that. Does that make sense? I think what we struggle with is we want to demonstrate need. And I always talk to my audience about focusing on the problem and the why and the vision and what you're trying to solve. And I wonder if you have any insight into how we can do this, like how we can demonstrate need, but how we can do it ethically. And like, I know you said words matter and you're a word nerd and language matters so much in this context. So how can we do this? We can stay true to our mission and we can demonstrate need and show that there's a problem, but how can we do it ethically? Yeah. I think one of the things that I often think about in this is, you know, in fundraising appeals, there need to be some stakes for the problem, right? For it to be compelling. You know, like you can plainly tell somebody what the problem is, but you kind of have to contextualize why the problem's a problem, essentially. So, you know, like why does it matter that like you have a wait list for this program or service? Why does it matter that there's such a high demand for something that your organization is doing? Like answering that is a key part of it. And I think with the stakes of it, there's a million ways to position the stakes. And I think that's where you can kind of get into this question of like, are we positioning this in an ethical way? Like, are we really representing the problem in a way that feels factual yet compelling? And to me, like in the bottom line of all my writing is like, it needs to be reflective of reality. Like, There's, there's no point in making things more dramatic than they actually are if that's not really true. Like if somebody, a donor comes back to you and says like, tell me more about this, like what's happening? Like you need to be able to factually respond to that and be like, oh yeah, here's the proof of why, like why we said these things. Like I think that there's an ethics in that that's that's incredibly important. But I think in terms of like positioning that for your organization, you know, I think to me that's a lot about like looking around the landscape of what's happening right now. Whenever I write fundraising emails in in particular, 
I always think about like writing them as starting off with like what's going on right now and like introducing the problem. Like I want people quickly to understand what's going on and why it matters. They need some amount of context to understand why I'm going to ask them for money. Like the why this, why now? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. So that's that's a big part of it. And, you know, I think for organizations, like there's always a through line of the problems they're solving. Like on some level that never changes much <laughs> year over year, like they're still doing the same services and programs and and that's fine. But I think that the relevance for that in the moment evolves so much. And I think we could look at like the last two years of COVID, like that deeply impacted how organizations positioned their problem and what they do. And that's going to continue to evolve. And I I think that's where some of the creativity comes in in this kind of fundraising is like just looking around and saying like, okay, what's happening in this moment that we can, again, make this relevant for donors, even if we're going to talk to them about this for the hundredth time, (laughs) but give them something new to connect in with, with the cause. We're so worried to talk about the stakes. We're so worried to talk about what would happen and what would be lost if we closed our doors. And I saw that during the pandemic, I really saw people saying, oh, we're so worried about looking desperate or looking like we can't keep our doors open or looking like we have failed. And the whole thing I I think nonprofits really need to realize is it's not a failure that you need assistance. It's not something where this problem is going to be solved in six months or a year or even in our generation. And that's a great question. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, how do we balance that storytelling ask when we have a cause that seems so like insurmountable? Maybe it's climate change. Maybe it's homelessness, poverty. Maybe it's racism. Like, How do we frame it in a way that makes it possible that things can be done, but also shows that need and those stakes? Yeah, well, I think going back to the question about the stakes for just a second, like I think there are two ways you can think about stakes. Like I think there's the threat and then there's the opportunity. And I always think about those as being two sides of the same coin. And it's like the positive versus the negative positioning of the stakes. And organizations can go left or right. It doesn't necessarily make a difference. But I think it can be interesting to explore those in the development of an appeal and of a story and just think about, okay, if we frame the stakes as like, here's the opportunity of what we can do with support versus like, here's what's going to happen if we don't get support. (laughs) You can kind of really see the real difference in like emotional tone and the stakes there. And I think that that can just be like a real playground for organizations to consider in a way, you know, also to not always have this like catastrophizing oh my God, the house is on fire messaging <laughs> with the stakes. And yes, with the it's okay. I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think going back to your question about like, how do we frame and position stakes with causes where there's just so much work to do? To me, that comes down to the theory of change that you have in your reason for donating. Like there should be some clear, tangible theory of change in there that's going to definitely show people how you can move the needle forward with a certain amount of part- people participating and donating to something. Like, sure, you're not going to get people to donate and solve climate, climate change next month. However, like, you know, if people donate to this, like, are you able to start running campaigns where you can put pressure on like key politicians or political players? Like, what is the small step that you're taking towards that? I think that this is something where I often see awry in fundraising appeals is that like, it's so big and visionary, but 
I think like in a lot of ways we need to like funnel it down a little bit. Like, sure, we can talk about that big picture context, but we also need to be really clear about what's going to happen <laughs> when people donate. Like, what are we doing with this? And how is this like moving the needle forward in some very specific and small ways? And like those small ways always add up, but it's important for us to be able to show people that progress over time. So how do we find stories that we think our donors would find interesting? I come at this, I think, probably from slightly different ways than some other people might. I always start with thinking about the messaging and the context of the appeal first. Like I, I don't usually start story first and then work that way. I usually think more about like what is the problem we're talking about? What's the ask? And what is it that we're trying to like demonstrate in this? And then I think about how can there be a story that illustrates this for people really clearly? And to me, I always think that this part of the process is like super collaborative. <laughs> like I'm often outside of outside of the organizations that I work with as you know, a consultant and a contractor. And so to me, this is where I really rely on like interpersonal relationships and conversations to talk to people about like my vision for the appeal and pick their brains a little bit about things that they've seen in the last few months in the work and say like, you know, do you think there's somebody who would be a good representative for this? Do you think there's like an instance within a program that would really reflect this messaging really strongly? And to me, this is about creating like real flow throughout the appeal. Like there's always going to be fantastic stories, but there's not always going to be a story that matches the message. So really finding that kind of like top-down alignment within the appeal is I think a good way to think about that rather than like piecemealing in a story that might be great, but maybe like doesn't quite make sense <laughs> with what it is that your your organization wants to talk about. We don't want to put like a round peg in a square hole. Exactly. Trying to yeah. shoehorn like you said. <laughs> I agree. I think it's interesting because I tell my clients to collect a lot of different stories from everywhere they are, you know, staff stories, donor stories, volunteer stories, client stories, mission stories, community-based partner stories, which stories are the most effective for fundraising. And if you have these staff and donor stories, you might not have client stories. Are those effective or should we really be focusing more on those impact stories? I think it depends on the type of work your organization is doing in some ways. Like, I mean, I think for an advocacy organization, there's probably less beneficiary client stories to begin with, like just because of the nature of the work. But I think that, you know, in the, like uh, in Marshall Gans's organizing model, like a story of self is incredibly powerful for people to hear. And, you know, I think staff and donors can speak to that really well. And I think, especially with donors, we get into the territory of, social proof, which is really powerful. I think the line a lot of organizations have to find is, and I think I see this especially with organizations who have like matching gift campaigns, that it's like, it's not about like profiling the significant major donor and lifting them up on a pedestal, but it's more about like the story of the values that drove why they decided to make this gift and why they're committing to this campaign. So less of a press release and more about like <laughs> the story of their of their gift, so to speak. And I think with staff stories too, you know, I've worked with a lot of uh, women's anti-violence organizations over the years where there's some real challenges and concerns around their clients' confidentiality for a plethora of reasons. And we really lean into staff stories to talk about, I think in those instances, like a lot about why the staff show up every day and do this work. Like, why is it so important to them that they 
be there as like a counselor or a crisis line volunteer answering phones and helping women in their community? Why is that service so necessary? And like, why do they want to be able to continue to do it? I think there's just some really powerful ways in which staff and donors can speak to that in their in their own ways. And I think I also look at the landscape of funders in appeals these days. And yeah, like a lot of them are definitely driven by client beneficiary stories, which I think are really powerful and really great. But I've certainly had clients in the last year who have leaned in other directions with stories that have also worked really well. I think it just takes some testing and sometimes deciding to go left when everybody else is going right isn't necessarily a bad idea. I saw some stories in COVID that was just the development director writing from the heart or an executive director just writing about what they were seeing. And I think of some of my favorite nonprofit newsletters, like I'm thinking of this group called the Night Ministry in Chicago, and they have a newsletter. It's just the executive director and what he sees and his perspective. So it's almost like a third party telling the story. And it just is the way that they do it and people are used to it and it's really effective for them. And then some other places they do tell the first person story that, you know, if they can get it, that's fantastic. And that kind of leads me into my next question, which is how can we, you know, both effectively and ethically involve our communities, like ask our communities to share their stories? Like what are some, some pitfalls, some challenges we should avoid when we're doing that? I mean, I think the most important one that I feel like I'm like, so conscientious about this, possibly like too conscientious sometimes. Um, I don't think there's anything as too conscientious. I know. Like, yeah, it's like the people representation. People need to be more conscientious. <laughs> yeah, to me, the thing that is always top of mind for me is like the representation of people in their stories. I always orient myself to them as that, you know, people are subjects of their own lives and their own stories, not subjects in the organization story. And I think about that a lot because I want people to feel like they've had a positive and empowering like experience sharing their story and haven't told their story only for it to become this like PR machine story <laughs> that that doesn't quite like look and feel the way they experienced it. And I think this is like this is a hard line I think for a lot of organizations because they know what donors will respond to. They know that like if they message something a certain way or position stories a certain way, like they might garner more response from it. Like it's going to pull the right heartstrings. <laughs> but I think that that like gets into this real like ethical, like unethical place of, of, yeah, just not really respectfully. And I think in a real dignified way, telling people's stories. I, I think that to me, that's like always top of mind. But I think in terms of asking people to share their stories, you know, the other thing I always think about is that like no one owes your organization their story. Absolutely. Let's say it again. No one owes your organization their story. Uh, yeah. I've definitely, I feel like over the years in my work, like I've certainly encountered people who are like, you know, we've done so much for these people. Like, why won't they just tell us our stories? And it's like, they, they do not owe you this. <laughs> like, if they want to. You can think that in your head. Do not ever say that out loud. No, it's not good. <laughs> so I think that's the other part too. It's like, I think you have to come from this like humble place of like, asking and if people are willing, being really grateful for that because I think it is a tremendous opportunity to share these personal stories and vignettes of what people have been through and you know honoring that in a really tremendous way by you know telling the story ethically, you know, thanking this person, involving them at points in the process where it makes sense so that they have some 
some say in how the story is being represented in a public facing way. I feel like one of the things I've seen and heard is more and more organizations using story releases where they just have people like they interview somebody, they have people sign a release saying they can use the story however they want, but then they're not really circling back with people when they go to use it. And I think just continuously having those points of consent is something that always feels really important to me. Yeah, they may have signed a release form two years ago, but we should circle back with them anyways. <laughs> just make sure that they're still in a place where they want, want to share this and they're okay if we you know share it in X, Y, and Z ways. I love that. And I think that it's so important giving people agency over their story, no matter where it is. If you, 10 years later, you want to take it off the website, okay, that's your prerogative, it's your story. And sharing that people really own their story. And also I read, I know I read it on your blog and I couldn't find the specific post, but sharing to the person that this story doesn't define them, like this experience doesn't define them. And I remember working in domestic violence and thinking just solely from a marketing and fundraising perspective and not really thinking about, okay, maybe there's a thousand different things that this person has done and has gone through and has a life experience. And this is one kind of bump in the road, or this is one thing that happened to them and it doesn't define them. And where does it fit into their, their overall story? Yeah. And I, I think that that's something I think a lot about with people who have been through trauma. I mean, I've certainly interviewed and talked to my fair share of people over the years who've been through really traumatic and you know, frankly, horrible things in their lives. and. You know, I, as somebody myself who like grapples with PTSD from an accident years ago, I I think I'm always sensitive to that and thinking that like, you know, sure, we want to tell the story of what happened, like the event maybe that led them to this situation, like in the, in the sense of like sexual assaults or domestic violence, like sure, we want to know like the inciting event, but I think the overriding story doesn't have to dwell on like the specifics that that person went through. It's like, we all know that was horrible. <laughs> we do not need to dramatize what someone went through. And I think from a or- perspective of where the organization intersects with them, like it's so much more about how this person has moved forward from something and how the organization has come alongside them and helped them. And we, we can move away from like a lot of those details that, you know, sure, like might raise the stakes of the story, but it's like, do we really need to tell that to people? Another question that I get all the time that I'm sure you get all the time is that this is wonderful. We really want to write this fundraising story. We want to create the story structure. We want to collect these impactful stories, but our boss says no. Our board says no. Everyone in the field says no. How do we get stories these kinds of stories, if we don't work directly with clients, a lot of my listeners are development and marketing directors. So what are some tips on that? I think you just got to start with, start from where you are. And Julia, I think you said it earlier, like, you know, thinking about telling your own story, weaving your own story into there, like you can start with yourself. (laughs) You are a great test subject to use through this and like use this kind of exercise on yourself and your own story and your relationships with the organization you know, I think about my time in-house as a fundraiser and development officer, and you know, I had the easiest access to donors and donor stories. 
And that was where it made sense for me to start. It was in some ways way less of a headache <laughs> to get those. And it was what like what I could do with the resources I had available. And I, I think that's like a way to like take the temperature down on this whole exercise of storytelling for yourself is just starting from where you're at. And, you know, sure, you may have aspirations of what like a tremendously powerful storytelling program can look like for your organization, but you're not gonna go from where you are now to like maybe this really sophisticated program in a month. <laughs> like there's going to be some steps in there and just thinking about like, what are the small steps that you can take in that process to garner buy-in, develop internal and institutional knowledge and support for this and move towards that in more of a long-term, like medium to long-term way. So I did watch your YouTube video. I've actually watched a few of them. I loved the one on creating a story bank can you share some of those tips with us? Because I think that is something that is really helpful, especially as we're trying to build that buy-in because people can, you can say, oh, you know, here are some great stories that we have or have had in the past and here's some other people that have helped us. So can you talk about creating a story bank? Yeah, absolutely. I'm such a fan of repurposing content, especially mm, stories. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Yeah. It's like also like, you know, how many people are going to see it if you share it once? I think about this all the time with our email, with my email clients, when we run email fundraising programs and campaigns for them, it's like, sure, a certain portion of people open an email, but it's like a small portion. Also, some people may have like skimmed it and not read it. And you're not ever going to get 100% of your audience size on something. So what can we do with like really great material that we have to uh, repurpose it, reposition it, and leverage that over time, especially if it's something that worked really well for your organization once. Like, can we bring it back in a new and different way and reintroduce it to people? So I think that story banks, content banks, these are all great concepts for you to centralize what it is you have in terms of assets so that you can have a quick inventory of everything and work with that more frequently. I've seen organizations do this in a lot of different ways, whether it's like, series of file folders on a local drive, Google Drive folders that they manage where they're keeping assets. I've had clients who've used Trello boards to organize their story banks. Love a good Trello board. Yeah, they can like collect all the assets in one place. Like, I think there's so many project management tools that you can repurpose for this. But I think the thing that I would say is that when you're collecting these stories and putting them into a place like this, like the most important things you're going to want to have are you know, your interview notes, like whether that's like notes you took, a transcript, recording, whatever it might be, any images that are proved to be used associated with that story, and also any final write-ups or public-facing content that you've created, whether that was like a one-off social media post or like a series of appeal letters that you've written. Having those all together for reference is um, just really helpful because you're not going to be able to easily find something you posted on social media five years ago. <laughs> but like, this creates that institutional knowledge for people moving forward within your organization of like, here's what we've done with this before and being able to find all of that much more easily. I love it. Having it, having it digitally, I think is huge. I'm reading a book right now that is so fantastic. It's called Building a Second Brain, <laughs> A Proven Method to Organize Your Digital Life and Unlock Your Creative Potentials by Tiago Forte. I recommend it to absolutely everyone because it's applicable to almost everything that we do. And I absolutely think it's applicable to what you're talking about, building a storytelling bank. Because the point of the book is, like you like you were saying, we have so much information coming at us. 
We have so many potential places that we can gather stories and get stories and write stories. And how can we manage it all in one place in a place that other people can access and that we can easily search and that we can easily find things? I really recommend that book. I love that book. I love anything on creating systems. And I know you're big on creating systems too. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I know that this will probably for some people seem like an extra step in the process where it's like, you want to publish something and just be done mm, with no, it. No, but it's it's your future self. Think about your future self. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's it can just really be so beneficial. I think one of the simpler ways to get started with it too, if you're just feeling like, oh my gosh, this sounds like a big undertaking I do not have time or bandwidth for is I would even just start with like a simple spreadsheet where you could have a couple columns of like the name of the person, story, you know, you've collected maybe some information about where the files might live within your organization and like any links to things that you posted about that story in there. It doesn't have to be super complicated, <laughs> but like even that can just be like a quick reference of like, okay, here's like in the last year, 10 really great stories we've told. And now we all remember them and we can find them if we need to. <laughs> your future self will thank you. That is one of my mantras. I've been writing down mantras that I want to live by. And one of them is your future self will thank you. I think about that when even something simple, like I don't want to do the dishes tonight. Okay. My future self, my future self in the morning will thank me. (laughs) Putting something in a file, like you just said, a Trello board or even just a Google drive, putting something in a spreadsheet when I need it, my future self will thank me. So I think creating these systems is an integral part to just making your development, your fundraising department much more effective and efficient. So Vanessa, this is fabulous. Where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you? I know you have an online course. Tell me about your book, your course, all of your offerings. Yeah. uh, The best place to find me is over at thestorytellingnonprofit.com. You can find information about the course they teach called the Storytelling Nonprofit Masterclass, which is a really in-depth guide to all things storytelling. If you're looking to create a really robust storytelling program for your organization that drives fundraising results, this will take you from zero to writing fundraising appeals that are story-driven within a couple of weeks. And I've also written a companion book to it, which is called The Storytelling Nonprofit, A Practical Guide to Raising uh, or to telling stories that raise money and awareness. And you can find that over on Amazon. But if you're looking to connect with me other places on the web, um, I'm at Vanessa E. Chase on Twitter and uh, over on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. I always learn something when I read your blog post and every time I hear you speak on podcasts. So I really appreciate you being here. And everyone check out the Storytelling Nonprofit. I will post everything in the show notes. And Vanessa, I just really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.